0: Before we start the show, a reminder to follow all of our political reporting on the NPR One app. That's O N E. You can find all your favorite podcasts, including Car Talk. That's right, Car Talk, not just on your radio, also available as a podcast. With advice, tips, troubleshooting, and occasionally answers to car questions. Get Car Talk now on the NPR One app or at npr.org podcasts. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast for Thursday, November 3rd, five days to go until Election Day. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis, I cover Congress.
1: And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent.
0: Ron, I thought that was you, but I wasn't sure be behind the pile of crumbled old styles and champagne and Chicago <laughs> Cubs gear.
1: Not to mention the pennants, and these pennants are the only pennants we've had in Chicago. They're the things that come on sticks. Congratulations, Ron.
0: If, if, you, if you don't know, Ron is a huge Cubs fan. How are you feeling?
1: As though I have actually moved into an alternative universe in which everything is really just different. And looking back on the old universe, I wonder why it's taken you guys so long to choose a president. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ron, you said you
0: were going to sing the Cubs song on the podcast.
1: I think it would be best to play the Cubs song on the podcast. Maybe,
0: should we end with that or do it right now?
1: I think we could do it at the end. Okay,
0: okay. But speaking of the World Series, a lot of the people I follow online were saying, this is such a great break from the presidential campaign, which was true. But both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were aggressively advertising during the World Series game, which was good for them since it was the highest watched game in 25 years. But uh, let's start the politics part of this politics podcast by uh, digging into some of these ads. Donald Trump had one called Change. We'll we'll listen to this one for a little bit first.
2: Hillary Clinton won't change Washington. She's been there 30 years. Taxes went up. Terrorism spread. Jobs vanished. But special interests and Washington insiders thrived. Donald Trump will turn Washington upside down day one. What do you
0: guys think of that?
3: You know, I think turn Washington upside down from day one. Mm -hmm. The thing that Donald Trump has always had on his side in this race is being the change candidate at the end of a two-term administration. And that, what he said there, turn Washington upside down from day one, is the thing you hear from voters consistently, consistently across the political spectrum. This idea that Washington needs to be shaken up. So it is not surprising to me at all that that is his closing message.
0: And the direct response to that argument is... is is kind of exactly what you saw in the new spot that Hillary Clinton had. We have to walk you through it a little bit because there's a lot of text on the screen. It's called What He Believes. It begins, he really believes this.
2: Putting a wife to work is a very dangerous thing. And this. When I come home and dinner's not ready, I go through the roof. He really said this. Grab him by the p***.
4: And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything.
2: (laughs) And did
0: this
4: more accusers coming forward to say they were sexually assaulted by Donald Trump.
0: And then at the end, the ad says anyone who does what he does is unfit to be president.
2: So you treat women with respect? Uh, I can't say that either.
0: All right, good. Ron, is that uh, that an effective counter volley to the turn Washington upside down?
1: Probably what the Clinton people are trying to do here is get the attention back on Donald Trump's flaws and off of this issue that has dogged her throughout the campaign year, which suddenly blew up, of course, last Friday with uh, FBI Director James Comey.
0: With And uh, in, in this question kind of gets to the two ads, because I feel like the one thing I hear from exasperated Democrats I know more than anything else is that this email issue is like a two-year thing that won't go away, and yet the half-life of, of Donald Trump's various controversies, it seems to be like a two-week thing, and then it kind of fades to the background.
1: There is, there is a great deal of mystery here in that Donald Trump is not a politician in people's minds. He is a person who is a television celebrity, a business person, a billionaire, a kind of ego that people are used to seeing misbehave, whether they see it in movies or see it on television or have watched Donald Trump's career. They don't feel that their expression in voting for Donald Trump is an endorsement of his lifestyle or his personality or his tax dodging or any of the rest of it. What they think it is is a punch in the face to Washington, D.C., If people focus more on the two candidates, which is clearly what the Clinton people are trying to do with their ad, they're trying to get you to look back at Donald Trump as he is not as the, quote, perfect ideal messenger Mm -hmm. against Washington – that's a different decision.
3: You know, it's also in this ad, it's one thing that Hillary Clinton has done in this entire race, is she has not run against Donald Trump as a Republican. She has run against him as uniquely unfit for the office. And part of that, and when it, what you hear in this message is her the sort of overtures she's made um obviously in this ad, not so subtly to women, which Mm -hmm. uh, make up more of the electorate and are breaking heavily towards her, and to women that often swing vote, that don't always vote for Democrats. And women will be decisive voting blocks in places like Pennsylvania and New Hampshire and North Carolina. So it's no coincidence that this is her closing message. Uh, And also she has tried To make an overture, at least, to Republican voters, the disaffected Republican who may not want to vote for Donald Trump. Although I think we've seen in the closing days of the race that a lot of traditional Republican voters really are coming home.
0: Okay, so let's get to what happened on the campaign trail today. Florida was uh, the focus, as it's been like basically every day, it seems. Uh, Barack Obama was back on the campaign trail for Hillary Clinton. Here he is in Miami attacking Donald Trump.
4: So you can't make excuses for this stuff. This isn't a joke. This isn't Survivor. This isn't The Bachelorette. This counts. This has to do with what's gonna happen in your family, in your community.
0: And uh, Obama later campaigned in Jacksonville. That's a city where Donald Trump was also stumping today. Here's Trump in Jacksonville attacking the president.
2: This guy ought to be back in the office working. He's not gonna be there very long, thank goodness. But he ought to be back in the office working we don't win anymore as our country we don't win with our military we don't win on trade this guy ought to get back to the office and stop campaigning
0: all right so more on florida in a second but we also found out where both candidates will spend the last night of the campaign before election day on november 7th donald trump will be in manchester new Hampshire. And that same night, Hillary Clinton will be in Philadelphia with Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. Big party for the Democrats. So um, two very interesting states. Uh, latest polls have Clinton up slightly in Pennsylvania. And New Hampshire it has been kind of all over the place. She's had big leads in a lot of polls, but the last few rounds have it pretty tight. How important, uh, let's let's take New Hampshire first. How
1: important is New Hampshire? New Hampshire is important because its four electoral votes would have made Al Gore president in 2000 had he won them. And they might be necessary to put Hillary Clinton over 270 if she holds the states that we call the Democratic Blue Wall, the ones that have voted Democratic every election since 1992, mm-hmm. adds a couple out west, Colorado, New Mexico, looking good for her, adds Virginia looking very solid for her. That and the Blue Wall makes her president. So they need one more on top, and that's New Hampshire, to make sure they can survive losing one electoral vote out of Maine, where they apportion them by congressional district. Not to get too complicated here, but- I thought that's
0: what we're here for, (laughs) to get complicated.
1: Not to get too complicated here, just complicated enough. New Hampshire is a kind of, not just cherry on top, it's the last piece in the puzzle for Hillary Clinton's basic approach to 270 electoral votes. So it is critically important.
3: What's unusual for me for Trump being in New Hampshire is usually your last event, your last final push is in a state with more electoral votes. You know, New Hampshire is still a pretty small part of the pot. So I was a little surprised by Trump going to New Hampshire because you think he would be in a state like Florida, which his own campaign has identified as an absolute must win for them. But these last events are also not just about you know, the votes, but it's about final messaging, final themes. And New Hampshire was a very critical victory for Donald Trump in the early primary states. He had a blowout victory in the New Hampshire primary against Ted Cruz. And it was the first victory after Iowa that people said, we think this guy's going to be the nominee of the party.
0: So from one of the smaller, uh, maybe the smallest swing state, uh, I guess that Nevada, probably, uh, to to one of the larger big electoral chunks, Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania, time and again, has been the state that, that Clinton and her campaign have returned to as kind of a firewall. Uh, all of the high-profile surrogates that she has, Michelle Obama, Elizabeth Warren, have been deployed there time and time again. Uh, Susan, you're the... Pennsylvania native here?
3: Well, one obvious reason why you close in Pennsylvania is it's an incredibly important state that does not have early voting. So the rallying voters there to show up on election day is still still necessary. So that makes an obvious sense. And also, one of the things we've seen indicators of in early voting in other states and in other polls is that the African-American vote in Pennsylvania and other places, is not as enthusiastic in 2016 as it was in 2012 and 2008. And African American voters are a, a pillar of the Democratic coalition. And in states where we've see other states like Michigan, we've seen polls closing or tightening. Even in Wisconsin, a lot of that is a reflection of diminished enthusiasm by the black vote.
0: And that's important in Pennsylvania more than most states because the way that a Democrat wins statewide in Pennsylvania is uh, to come out of Philadelphia with a 400,000, 500,000 vote lead... And that, uh, and maybe add on to that in kind of the surrounding suburbs, and then the rest of the state, except for around Pittsburgh, typically goes Republican. So that plays such a critical role in winning that state. So, yeah, I think I guess it does make sense, especially since they spent so much time in, in Ohio and in Florida and North Carolina, where voting has been going on for weeks, to, to really focus that final rally there in Pennsylvania.
1: Absolutely. And also, let's remember another sort of, if you will, rather romantic notion here that the Philadelphia. Location of the Democratic National Convention this year was really a high point in turning around what had been a rough primary season for Hillary Clinton and unifying the party, bringing people together on those last couple of nights, and she got a big boost out of that into the polls in August, and August was really a strong month for her. So Philadelphia has a strong identification with the virtues of, if you will, the relative strengths of the Clinton campaign.
0: So so we're talking about how important the, uh, the getting the big cities to turn out, getting black voters to turn out is. This is something that uh, Barack Obama has been kind of deployed to do for Clinton. Uh, he's been doing a lot of radio interviews where he talks explicitly about this.
4: The president has called home, <laughs> President Barack Obama. Yes, sir. Now, I got a favor for you. Yes. Here he was on
0: a Tom Joyner's radio show yesterday.
4: And, and I'm going to be honest with you right now, because we track. We've got early voting. We've got all kinds of metrics to see what's going on. And right now, the Latino vote is up. Overall vote is up. But the African American vote right now is not as solid as it needs to be. And I know that there are a lot of people in in barbershops and the beauty salons, you know, in the neighborhoods who are saying to themselves, well, you know, we love Barack. We love, we especially love Michelle. And so, you know, it it was exciting. and, And now we're not excited as much and you know what I need everybody to understand that everything we've done is dependent on me being able to pass the baton to somebody who believes in the same things I believe in and so if you really care about my presidency and what we've accomplished then you are going to go and vote and if you don't know where to vote Go to iwillvote.com.
3: You know, this is very similar message, if you remember when the president spoke in September at the Congressional Black Caucus dinner, in which he said there that if they lost the black vote, he would consider it a personal insult to his mm-hmm. legacy. And I think that's, when we talk about, you know, Trump being in New Hampshire and the symbology there, I think there's something very similar about the Obamas being in Philadelphia and trying to mirror the enthusiasm for Democrats in 2016. And this
0: idea that, uh, you know, so much of it could be eroded Right away by a Republican president. I mean, given that so much of what Obama did over the last six years was through executive orders, he's not really exaggerating much, is he?
1: No, he is not. And in fact, even what was accomplished in the first two years, such as Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, or the uh, the Dodd Frank Act, uh, regulating elements of Wall Street, didn't go far enough. A lot of Democrats feel they don't really. Champion that legislation. Nonetheless, when it's repealed, there will be even less regulation of Wall Street. So, things of that nature that were passed when the Democrats did still control Congress can also be turned around once there is a Republican Congress and a Republican president.
0: All right, so we were talking about Pennsylvania. We need to get to something that happened there today. Uh, Melania Trump was in the suburbs outside Philadelphia. She gave a big speech, maybe her most high profile uh, speech or appearance since the convention. And we will point this out only because it was sung on the podcast recently. She walked out onto the stage to Age of Aquarius.
5: The next first lady of the United States of America, Melania Trump. <laughs>
2: the
1: of the of America. sing again? I think that would be inadvisable, but I'm just flummoxed as to exactly what the... Well, there have been a lot of songs used throughout the Trump campaign that seemed somewhat incongruous to, generally speaking, the
0: like the Jock Jams theme song. Well,
1: uh, the, the one that kept blowing my mind that they used over and over and over was you can't always get what you want. Yeah. In the Rolling Stones. And and they would play this at, at terribly inappropriate times, such as when they introduced Mike Pence as his <sighs> vice presidential running mate. Well, they still play it at the end of every rally. And, and the question is, what is that trying to communicate?
0: Well, if you're puzzled by that, you're going to be even more puzzled by what she said, because Melania Trump, talked about how she wants to stop the spread of bullying online.
5: As adults, many of us are able to handle mean words, even lies. Children and teenagers can be fragile. They are hurt when they are made fun of or made to feel less in looks or intelligence. This makes their life hard and can force them to hide and retreat. Our culture has gotten too mean and too rough, especially to children and teenagers.
0: I feel like, it, am I asking a question here? I'm just going to lob the ball up for the alley-oop of, like, response to this.
3: Either she has never read Donald Trump's Twitter feed, or this is some sly response to her husband's Twitter feed and trying to get him to tone it down a bit. I mean, Donald Trump's trademark on social media, and particularly on Twitter, has been been sort of the 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 insult and, and defining your opponent by the insult. Crooked Hillary, Lion Ted, Low Marco, Low Energy Jeb. I mean he has been a one-man insult machine throughout the course of this campaign.
0: But you know what? Melania Trump does have the power to single-handedly lower the tone of online bullying in America by just, like, taking her husband's phone (laughs) and maybe changing his password. And right then, huge step.
1: All of these things, I suppose, are, are atmospherics around the point that the Republican campaign for Donald Trump has been rather effectively making in the last 10 days, which is they have been normalizing him. He has had relatively few real ramps. Mm-hmm. He has been much more on the teleprompter. His ads feature someone else making his case and then him saying, I approve this message. This is a much more acceptable figure than the person we have been watching for the last 16, 17 months.
0: And that, uh, that squares with the last period where he kind of went up in the polls. It was, it was late August, early September, where he basically didn't have these these defining rants or sidetracks or attacks uh, so trump actually maybe one of these things where where the internal thing you're telling yourself escapes from your lips uh, talked about this uh, in, in a florida appearance last night
2: we've got to be nice and cool nice and cool All right stay on point donald stay on point no sidetracks donald nice and easy nice because I've been watching Hillary the last few days. She's totally on a hinge. We don't want any of
0: that. Nice and easy.
3: This is like the speech he hinge. gives himself in the in the mirror in the morning yeah. when he's getting ready.
1: <laughs> or, or the speech that Kellyanne Conway gives him yes. before he goes on stage. I mean, look, I, I mean, all candidates are handled. All candidates have consultants and managers and people who tell them how to behave and how to talk. It's just that for so much of this campaign, Donald Trump seemed to be utterly ignoring all those people. And now, in the last 10 days, and one would have to say it was the... right time to do it he has been listening to them and disciplining himself
0: all right so a couple more surrogate updates before we take a break bill clinton made an under the radar campaign stop in detroit where he met in a church with local pastors and community leaders to encourage turnout this is michigan is a democratic sure thing most years but you have this and an upcoming hillary clinton rally Kind of gives the sign they're not fully confident and maybe it ties into this concern that, that President Obama was addressing about black turnout.
1: Sure. And why not? I mean, this has uh, narrowed in the polls. Michigan, while it may have become something of a democratic lake in recent decades, is always contested. People always talk about taking it back. Mitt Romney had a very strong claim to the state. He had grown up there, and he always talked about taking it back, so on. It is possible that something is going on, that perhaps people are coming out to vote who have never voted before. Perhaps the polls have been missing some of Donald Trump's support or perhaps some of the Democratic vote, perhaps the black vote, is just not that enthusiastic and not showing up in the numbers required to elect a Democrat. Two of the states
0: we've talked about here, where we're talking about Hillary Clinton going back there, spending money on ads, there are two of Bernie Sanders' biggest primary wins, uh, New Hampshire, where he blew her out, or Michigan, which was, which was one of the big surprises of the primary season. And
1: Wisconsin as well.
0: All right. And another one. And this is just like a weird grouping of people that I think we have to note. Hillary Clinton holding a joint rally in North Carolina with Bernie Sanders and Pharrell Williams. That's in Raleigh, North Carolina.
3: Like what do Bernie <laughs> Sanders and Pharrell talk about in an elevator? <laughs> like, we're on the, on the ride down to the rally. I have no idea.
0: All right. In, in awkward and kind of a more of a political way, you have Mike Pence and Ted Cruz campaigning together today in Iowa.
3: Also, maybe weird in the elevator when they're going
0: to. Yeah. Remember when Pence, like, endorsed Cruz, but kind of talked more about Donald Trump when he did it? It Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, one more thing, Sue, Mitch McConnell came out of hiding, didn't he?
3: He did. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been essentially absent from the public sphere since the story broke about the 2005 Access Hollywood tapes and Donald Trump. And he put out one statement at the time, sort of distancing himself from Donald Trump and saying his comments were abhorrent. And then he just kind of went into hiding. He made one event in Kentucky at an event with local business leaders a little while ago in a recent speech. He said if people came there to hear him discuss Trump, that they might as well go ahead and leave. That was his comment then. But at a rally yesterday in Georgetown, Kentucky, he was introduced as Mitch McConnell was introduced as the most powerful Republican in America. And he came out and said, We need a new president. Donald Trump to be the most powerful Republican in America. And then he said at the same event that if the rest of America votes like Kentucky, we'll be fine. Kentucky, of course, being a reliable Republican state. Mm-hmm. So this is maybe not an explicit reendorsement of Donald Trump, but certainly a tacit endorsement of Donald Trump. And the closest thing we've heard to uh, warm fuzzies coming from Mitch McConnell towards Donald Trump in the close. And, you know, in a lot of these states, and a lot of these Senate races, Republicans have really held their own and are still fighting. And, you know, the the playing field has always sort of tilted towards Democrats because they Republicans are just have always been defending more seats. But they're still in for the fight. And the fact that McConnell came out and said this is a suggestion that maybe they're not feeling so scared.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
3: Support for NPR Politics podcast and the following message come from Wix.com, who believes every great business needs a stunning website. With Wix.com, it's easier than ever to create yours with all the things you need to look amazing online. Images, videos and professional text. And the best part is you can do it all on your own. Go to Wix.com. Create your stunning website today.
0: All right, we're back. And before we do a bit of listener mail, let's talk about something that happened yesterday at Trump's rally in Pensacola. Trump regularly challenges and taunts the press at his rallies. And he hadn't done this in a while, but sometimes he'll specifically call out reporters by name. Uh, He did that yesterday to Katie Turr of NBC News. This has happened to her before. In fact, she's written about having to be escorted out of a rally by Secret Service when this happened at one point because so many people in the crowd were, were yelling specifically at her. So yesterday, Trump began complaining about the media and their refusal, as he put it, to turn their cameras to show how big his crowds are.
2: We have massive crowds. There's something happening. They're not reporting it, Katie. You're not reporting it, Katie. But there's something happening, Katie. There's something happening, Katie.
0: So Katie Tur talked about this experience on MSNBC last night. Here she is with uh, Brian Williams.
5: Let me tell you, it's been a a wild ride for a, about a year and a half and it is a unique experience to have an entire uh, crowd of people whether it is a open air venue like we were today or a stadium with ten plus thousand people uh... booing you and it's especially unique when they're actually saying your name and looking directly at you uh... and that's what happened today uh... that being said donald trump was complaining about this uh, idea that he has that the press doesn't show his crowds which is so just going to explain
0: Uh, about how the pool camera, it's an agreement among all the networks, its job is to stand there and keep its shot directly on the candidate. There are always other cameras there. They're always going around and and showing the full crowd. But this is something that Trump does at every single rally I'm at. There's this moment where he says the media refuses to show the size of the crowds. But but here's the thing. Uh, That pool camera, it's never going to go off the candidate because it's there to keep its shot on the candidate. And Tur said that, that Trump Donald knows this.
5: Donald Trump has joked in private because he is a man who does entertainment for a living. He understands how it works, or he used to at least. Uh, he understands the production quality of this, and he's joked about how he knows how a pool camera works. So uh, this is a shtick that he does. It's uh, to rot to rile up his base it's super... Of
1: course he knows it and he's very sophisticated about how the media work to a large degree and then he gets on stage with his crowd and he goes through a standard part of his speech which is to reinforce the narrative that these media who are present at all of his rallies and covering them slavishly, and oftentimes carrying them unfiltered throughout the entire rally For the last year and a half, but it fits the narrative that he's being cheated by the media, that the media are always misrepresenting him and belittling his campaign, which is an important part of his narrative.
3: That has absolutely been an element of Trump rallies, but it also seems like the stagecraft there, it's almost sometimes people at the rallies are kind of like in on the joke. Like the one thing you hear a lot from Trump supporters is they say he doesn't mean it literally. He's Mm -hmm. not... It's part of a show and that I remember being... It wasn't a Trump rally, but I remember being at a Pence event and I had this, like, really lovely warm conversation with a guy there who was like a hardcore Trump-Pence guy. And we talked for like 20 minutes and he was telling me about his kids and it was this very like human, yeah. normal interaction. And Pence also does a similar point in his speech where he'll say the media back there, you know. Yeah. And the same guy that I just had this like very lovely conversation with turned around and started screaming and taunting at yeah. the press and shame on you and shame on you. And it it just seems like it's, it's a lot of it is theatrical. That said, you know trump calling out specific reporters is you know that's that can be a very scary threatening and bullying thing to do to someone particularly when the media And I use the media. I'm making hand quotes when I say the media because you can argue of what that means. But the public has a very low view of the media right Mm -hmm. now as well, too. So it kind of plays to his base and his base of support that attacking us is good for him.
0: And I've had that exact same thing happen where you have a nice conversation and maybe they'll they'll jokingly say, oh, you guys are biased and, and have thoughts on media coverage and not like it. But when Trump starts to kind of bash the media and gets the whole crowd going, it'll change. And sometimes I've kind of made eye contact with people I'd already talked to and had a nice conversation with. And they're looking me, and they don't look that happy at the moment. So it's an interesting psychological shift. Uh,
3: And we should note that Kellyanne Conway, Trump's campaign manager, was on Morning Joe this morning. And she said his comments towards Katie Turr that he did not mean it in any malicious way. A
1: few things are absolutely new under the sun. Way back in the 1950s, Joe McCarthy would travel around the country with a small band of reporters who would cover him wherever he went. He was a senator from Wisconsin, and he would introduce the reporters in the front row. He'd say, hey, folks, stand up, Ed let the people see what a real communist looks like and the crowd would hoot and holler and you know all but throw things at them and then after the rally was over McCarthy would go down to that row of reporters and say come on guys let's go get a drink (laughs) and that was the standard routine night after night when he was out on the stump during his heyday as uh, the leader of the anti-communist scare of the 1950s
0: okay so we've got time for two quick questions the first is from Abigail in Los Angeles Hi guys, my question is about campaign contributions. Do candidates always spend all the money they've raised? If not, what happens to any that's left over? P. S. You're my favorite podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks, Abigail. This is a this is a question we get a lot, actually. Who wants to uh who wants to take a crack at it?
3: Well, they certainly don't aren't gonna send you your money back, Abigail, if that's <laughs> the question
0: you're asking. I was contributing to a winner. Will Wait I be getting
3: second. that three dollars back that I texted? I. Uh, Most of the time, particularly on a presidential level or a very competitive race, there's not a lot of money left at the end of the race. If anything, campaigns often go into debt at the end. Mm -hmm. So that's why sometimes even when a campaign loses and you keep getting financial solicitations from them, that is to pay off their debt. So that's very common that if you're a candidate, you actually end in the red and have to raise the money to pay back. If you do have money left over, campaigns oftentimes will give bonuses to their top staff first
0: and uh, when they do keep the money they can use it in future campaigns right
3: yes they can and you can also use depending on well it gets complicated but you can also use some of your campaign funds to help other campaigns or transfer those funds to state parties or to other parts of your party apparatus
0: and sometimes depending on the state and this is very controversial you can use it to like pay your legal bills yes So we've got one more question. We're going to end with a recorded question from Adrian, who's overseas. Hi, folks. My name is Adrian Maldonado, and I'm an archaeologist based at Glasgow in Scotland. And I was going to ask you guys a pretty heavy question, something for
2: my students, about demographics and polling and whether this unintentionally splits the world into racial viewpoints. But you know what? It's late in the election, and there's something (laughs) that's
0: been weighing on me for a lot longer. It's about Mr. Ron Elving, who I'm a huge fan of. And I just wanted to know... What radioactive spider bit Ron Elving to give him his superpowers of political knowledge? This is a serious question, you guys, and I hope you get around to answering it. Hashtag Ron Elving for president. Hashtag Ron Elving, national treasure. Where did this come
1: from? (laughs) This was not in the script. Can I just
0: say, on top of that, that I asked Ron one brief question this morning. It had to do with the Cubs. And he talked in a span of a minute about William Jennings Bryan, uh, you asked William Howard me? Taft, oh, FDR, on. Ross Perot, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton, like, in a
1: linear conversation. <laughs> it, it must have been some sort of spider. Uh, you asked about 1908, the last time the Cubs won the World Series and that presidential election won by William Howard Taft, uh, which was, you know, kind of interesting because he was following along, you know, after two terms of a president of his party, Teddy Roosevelt. I mean,
3: I loved the conversation. It just I, was I'm impressive.
1: Ju- I, ju- You're right, though. I have a real problem.
3: <laughs> it's not a problem. Embrace it. I think we have to change Ron sock out to, I'm Ron Elving, and I'm a national treasure. No,
1: I'm Ron Elving, and I'm still talking.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of love for Ron Elving, I, was... I think, as promised, we need to end the show celebrating his Chicago Cubs and his Ron Elvingness. And let's just do that. All right.
3: Congratulations, Ron.
1: Go Cubs forever. Go Cubs.
0: Well, we'll be back tomorrow, and you can write us with your own questions or record a voicemail and send it to nprpolitics at npr.org. As always, keep up with our coverage at nprpolitics.org or on your local public radio station.
3: I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress.
1: And I'm Ron Elving, and
0: I'm embarrassed. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics
2: Podcast.